How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. I, I really, I never know whether they're really applauding for me or for your incredible introduction. Uh, well, you might never know. We might never know, some of both, I'm sure, because it's always wonderful, wonderful. So I want to try something different tonight, guys. Um, I'd like to try reading one of the stories that I've written about some of my psychiatric patients. What do you think? Should we give it a try? I'm down. Yeah. Tom, you're up for it? Let's do it. Okay. So this is a story called Decaf. Okay. <laughs> Let's get started. Put down the chair. I was walking onto the inpatient unit. A nurse was screaming in fear for herself as a very large and psychotic man had a chair raised high over his head, ready to smash it onto the defenseless woman. Staff were already running towards him, about to intervene, about to try to wrestle away the weapon and place the man in restraints if needed. Put it down. Another voice joined. Another person scared and startled. The chair hung weightless in the air, held high by the man's fully extended arms. A metal frame securing a plastic seat and backrest, the gleaming sheen of polished steel, ready to crack down on the skull of a nurse who was just doing her job, just trying to keep patients safe, just about to have her head cracked open by the man draped in a hospital gown, face red with the flow of adrenaline, breath fast and heavy with the flow of psychotic rage. Dan was my patient, about to assault a nurse. I walked over, a brisk but controlled pace, the 10 steps to cross the room, not running, not giving a hint of urgency, remote of exigency. I arrived to the side of Dan and the nurse where they both could see me. Hey, Dan. Want a cup of coffee? The non sequitur made Dan pause. The nurse startled, a plea in her eye, but without a voice. The other staff, ready to take control of the situation, looked at me in astonishment, as if to ask, who was the crazy one here? This guy was about to beat the crap out of a nurse with a chair. Dan looked toward me. The chair still poised high above his head, a feather of ferocity wielded by a very sick and angry man but he was my patient, so I went on. Decaf, okay? A grin crossed his face, and he put down the chair. Cream? Sounds like a plan. Let's go and talk. As the nurse let down her protective arms, as the staff remained within a reasonable distance in case Dan's mood changed again, my patient and I walked to the kitchen area for a cup of decaf. Dan was 35 and had been in a state hospital for 16 years. 
He had not responded to a multitude of antipsychotic medications, remaining in a world of delusion and paranoia, fearful and feared as he was a big, a very big and very psychotic man. He had been moved out of the state hospital as the first step towards a transition into the community, not because he was particularly ready or better or more able to manage reality. Throughout the country, the aid for the mentally ill was drying up. And who did these people crippled by mental illness have as their champion? How were these severely incapacitated people meant to organize and lobby for themselves. The societal fear of mental illness continues to place a moral overlay on behavior that was on occasion erratic and unpredictable, creating anxiety in the community and resulting ostracizing rather than understanding of the inner world of these most remarkable of individuals. So Dan had become my patient in a university-based hospital after surviving for two days post-discharge from his 16-year sanctuary. He was my first patient on Clozero, a new antipsychotic that had just come out in the early 1990s. I was a second-year resident doing one of my inpatient rotations and Dan was one of my patient teachers. By the time of the chair incident, I had known him for a week tremendously paranoid and just wanting to go home, go home, go home. Oh, Dan. Go home. Dan was on a court order to take medication, judged too impaired by his psychiatric condition to make his own decisions about his treatment. Clausewell had just been added to the treatment plan, but he had not started. We spoke about it over coffee, about the need for weekly blood draws to check his white blood cell count about how fast we could go up on the medicine, about how it was new and worked differently, but may not work at all, about how grateful I was that he had put down the chair and did not need to be restrained or given injections. Dan nodded gently as he sipped his decaf with cream. He was still paranoid, but being treated with respect and dignity, he would calm. Not until more than a decade later, did I recognize that the style of care I was developing as a resident had a calming effect on patients and staff by treating them with respect, by treating them with dignity, by seeing them as simply doing the best they could at that moment in time, let it to be known as an I am, by letting them know they are valuable and that I have a true interest in who they are and why they do what they do as a person not a chart, not a diagnosis. These people at their time of greatest need and vulnerability recognized I was just trying to help and rarely would become enraged. Even in the throes of psychosis, a patient can usually recognize when they are not in danger, although they can perceive danger where none exists. It was through this understanding that I was able to calm Dan down. He did not perceive me as a threat, nor did he see me as threatening him. And I did not see him as a threat or threatening. For Dan, I am convinced that if I had come into the ward and demanded he put down the chair or addressed it at all, the nurse would have been injured and Dan eventually restrained. 
by my doing something non-threatening, even perhaps outrageous and off-topic. Dan was able to withdraw from his aggression and paranoia and put down the chair. So we sat together and prepared to start yet another new medicine. So some weeks passed, slowly, 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 Dan began his return to reality. His paranoia abated, his rage receded, and he began to connect to the world in a way he had not done for almost half his life. He had not passed a day without being psychotic or delusional, despite heroic efforts with medication after medication, and now he was beginning to clear. And now he began to see his reality without the lens of psychosis obscuring his vision. And now was very, very real. I sat with Dan after his psychosis had cleared. Together, we began to look forward to a time when he could indeed leave the confines of a psychiatric hospital and start his life in the community. What, what have you done? What have you done to me? He asked. His question took me by surprise. What have you done? He repeated. I didn't know what I had lost all those years. Why have you done this to me? Dan was no more psychotic, but the enormous grief of 16 years lost was beginning to overwhelm him. He began to wonder about his friends from high school, how they had gone on with their lives while his had been frozen in a world where his mind betrayed him, where he lived without freedom, locked in the abyss of his mental illness. Free of those chains, he now had to face his world, far, far behind his peers, far, far away from his family who had grown on without him, never giving up, but having to give up having to continue with their lives. His mother had died without him being aware. His father, old and infirm, his brothers and sisters moved to other states, families, children, jobs, and he had nothing but his sanity. It was too much to bear. The horror and trauma of his 16 years of psychosis and unexpected defense against the despair he now experienced. No more psychotic. He was depressed. Healing has its dark side. As some people begin to face the results of rescue, perhaps infirm, perhaps with handicap, perhaps with anger, deep regret, the grief and loss and outrage of opportunity gone, of facing days upon future days with a body or mind that had betrayed them at the deepest level. I put Dan on an antidepressant. It would not heal his wounds of lost years, but would at least give him a chance to begin his path back to some degree of functionality. He had every right to grieve, but at the same time could not afford a regression back into psychosis, although part of him desperately yearned for this retreat. In time, he rallied. A team was built around Dan and he was indeed able to transition slowly, slowly, slowly to a group home, a day treatment program, closely monitored, given job coaching, training, support, 
He was not a stupid man. And without the gauze cow distortion of his psychosis, quickly learned a skill at which he excelled. With time and help, he rebuilt a life, not as a replacement for his lost years, but rich with potential and a renewed sense of who he was, who he had been, and how was he emerging out of the fearful world of distortion and depression. Dan taught me a lesson. A break with reality can be a trauma, but coming back can sometimes be worse at first. And it is always good to have someone with whom to share a cup of coffee, even if it is decaf. Good story, Dr. Joe. Thank you. Um, I tell you, it was it was one of the most important moments in my young career as a psychiatrist in training. You know, because we work a lot with people who are just so amazing. And yet so many people are afraid of them. And, and part of it, I think, is because we in psychiatry and in medicine in general have gone down a path of pathology where we wonder why someone is sick and broken. We give them a label and we call them disordered. Major depressive disorder, uh, schizophrenic disorder, attention deficit disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, as if these people who are living their lives at their IM don't belong. They don't belong in our group, not in the ordered group. They belong in the disordered group. And then we are astonished that we have stigma. I'd like to think that this can relate, you know, to a lot of people and a lot of people can relate to the story. Um, we, we have an opportunity here to really change the paradigm using the I am approach. Remember the I am is saying, the person is always doing the best they can at every moment in time. This is your current maximum potential. Dan's current maximum potential is I am at that moment in time was holding a chair above his head because he was afraid and he thought things were happening in his world that weren't. I mean, talk about a conspiracy theory. He really thought that these people had conspired against him for years and he was understandably afraid. And you know what? It was just an intuition on my part. I mean, I, I didn't know that I was gonna say that. I just knew that I wasn't going to buy into what was about to happen, which was that we were going to put hands on this guy and hold him down because of the fear that other people felt in their hearts. So it just sort of came out naturally. Hey, want a cup of coffee? And I, I, I still remember his face. I and mean, he looked at me like, really, like I said in the story, who's, who's the crazy one here, coffee? No one's ever, I'm about to smash a hair, a chair on this nurse's head and you're offering me a coffee? 
And then I use some humor, decaf. Okay, no more, no more caffeine stimulant for you, my friend. And he got the joke. And that's when he said, cream. And it was fine. It was a small change with a big effect. I controlled no one. I influenced everyone. And I got to choose the kind of influence I wanted to be. It, it was intuitive. You know, it wasn't prefrontal. It was an intuition. But as I say, intuition is the precursor to technique. As I realized why it had worked, I could make it a technique. And that was where the IM was coming from. Now, I had already come up with the IM equation. This was eight or nine years after I'd first come up with the idea. I came up with the idea back in 1982 when I was you know, taking physics. And I always say, is everyone still awake? Whenever I say physics, people immediately fall asleep. But, but that was the idea. Symbol I stands for potential current. And I just flipped it upside down. I call it a current potential. And let's look at everyone at a maximum current potential, doing the best they can at this moment in time with the potential to change in the very next second to another I am. This is who I am. And I matter. And it changes things when you realize that other people also think you matter. And when other people think and believe you matter, it calms your brain down. That's the way we outsmart anger. That's the way we do it. We keep it frontal. We don't go limbic. We shift over. Because remember, the prefrontal cortex, that part of the brain, you know, that's right behind your forehead, responsible for thinking, for rational thought, for anticipating what will happen next after you execute a plan. It's also the place where theory of mind lives. You can't see someone's mind, so we have to guess and theorize. What are they thinking? What are they thinking or feeling about me? What makes you angry, uh, Dr. Joe? I almost called you Uncle Joe. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Well, we'll have to talk about yeah. that. Do you have an Uncle yeah, Joe? Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. I, I should lie <laughs> back down on the um, You know, it's, it's interesting because I, I do experience anger, um, but, but I, I recognize it quickly. You know, the, the first step in really you know, outsmarting anger is to recognize it. You recognize rage. And there are certain things that get me angry. Um, anger, you know, is an emotion designed to change things. We get angry when we want somebody to do something different, start doing something or stop doing something. We're actually talking about this a lot on our Facebook page. We've been having some very interesting discussions. And I don't mean to be elusive, Mark. You know, there was some, there were things that used to make me a lot angry when I was younger. And I think that, you know, there are, there are different things um, at different times of our development that make us angry. Um, but these days, I, I'm just so much more interested in why people do what they do. And I think that that, that has diffused a lot of anger. Um, because when, when you really, really adopt the I am approach and you live it, it's much more interesting to wonder why people do what they do 
than to worry why they do what they do. It's much more interesting to be reflective than reflexive. And so I'll, I'll get angry and I'll think, okay, what do I want to see different? That's the first thing. I recognize it. You recognize that rage. There's nothing wrong with anger. It's what you do with it that's important. Some of the most important social changes in history have been because people wanted something to change. You know, they want things to change. What about you, Mark? What sort of things well, make you there's angry? There's a lot of anger out there right now. Yeah. There's a lot of people that are looking for change. There are a lot of people that are upset that they're being told what to do and how to do it. Feeling as, of though, as, as though their liberties are being restrained and they don't like to see other people suffer. Um, what, what makes me angry? You know, it's a good question. It's usually something that I've done. You know, I've become angry with myself as opposed to what somebody else has done. Right. So if something um, that I feel as though I could have done better or reacted uh, inappropriately, I get angry with myself. Um, very rarely am I angry with other people or how other people have behaved because I believe in the I am approach. Yeah. And you're living it. Right. It looks like we have a phone call. We've got Ken from Freetown on the phone. Hey. Ken, welcome. Welcome to the Dr. Joe show. Hi, how are you? Good. We're going to ask you the same thing. What's on your mind? So uh, a long time ago, I worked at the Crystal Springs School in Asona, which is a school for developmentally disabled individuals. And uh, in that time, I worked in this house, and it was a house with uh, residents who had high behavioral issues. And so these are people who, you know, they, they sort of lack what the rest of us kind of take for granted. And this one night, there was this particular resident, Craig, who, um, who he, he was a five-man restraint, uh, restraint when he went into behavior. And so uh, this was a very difficult individual to deal with when they got angry. And so this particular night, I was working third shift. It was me and another guy, Bob. And uh, Craig came out, and he's like, I want to beat up Tim, which is me. And I was like, Craig, why do you want to beat me up? I want to beat up Tim. And that's what he said again. And I said, well, what do you want? And he's like, I want some soda. And I said, well, you know, I'm not supposed to give you soda. It's past, you know, bedtime now. So I'm really not supposed to do that. And he's like, I want to beat up Tim. At this point, I'm a little, I'm a little scared because he's been known to body slam a bureau with three drawers in it, just mm -hmm. out of anger. And like, he doesn't look at a bureau and say, that thing's heavy. Maybe I can't lift it. He just will pick it up and body slam it. And so I said, okay, all right. I said, all right, Craig. All right. I said, how about if I give you just a little bit of soda? And he goes, okay. Because he has this kind of high-pitched voice. Hmm. And so I went and I got this little Dixie cup, like you would use for mouthwash. And I put about a tablespoon of soda in it. And I gave it to Craig. And, and Craig sipped it. And he said, thank you. And then he kissed me on the cheek. And he went to bed. And we didn't hear from him again. And so uh, that was just a, an interesting situation of how to uh, how I kind of diffused what was sort of an issue. I'm getting goosebumps listening to that story. That is such a great example. So, what was your intuition on that? 
Well, first off, I didn't want to get beat up. That's good. That's good. Good. <laughs> that was my first. And the, the yeah. other thing was, I, I didn't want to escalate the situation. And although we had protocols we had to follow where it was like, you know, you're not supposed to do these things. I thought to myself, why don't I give this individual a little respect here? Let's just give him a little bit of what he wants. And let's see if that will kind of diffuse the situation and make the night go smoothly um, for the rest of this night. Because I knew if this thing, if, if I, if I took the approach of, I'm not going to give you that. I'm not supposed to. And I took a hard stance on it. I felt like that night could have gone a lot worse for everybody. Right. And I didn't want to see that happen either. And so I, I just kind of, I just felt like, you know, let's give him a little respect. Let's just, you know, just give him a taste of what he wants. You know, not the whole, you know, can of soda or something like that. Cause that would have been first against protocol and second, maybe, maybe caving in too much which could have created a situation for me where the, the next time I was on a shift, he would have asked for more and this thing would have gotten worse. And so I was just trying to find a way to kind of balance between having respect for the individual and what they were asking for and still following the protocols that I was supposed to follow. And so that was kind of at the time my thinking and also there's quite a bit of self-preservation going on at this time as well. And so that was kind of my thinking in, in that situation in that moment. Yeah, I, I think it's it's great. Um, I so appreciate the phone call. Thanks for calling in. And, and please be sure to, to keep listening to the Dr. Joe show. And um, it's a great story. You know, it, it, it's about negotiation, isn't it? I mean, this yeah, is, it, it, I, in that situation, it certainly was. A lot of times it did come down to some, some negotiations. Yeah. And also, I think I think one of the biggest factors was was giving respect. Because I saw many of my colleagues in that time who would sort of um, put on what, what I would say is like a fake voice when they were dealing with the residents of Crystal Springs, which de deals with developmentally disabled individuals. And I felt like I always wanted to talk to them with the same voice I would talk to anybody else. And I thought that in some ways that commanded some respect uh, of them to me as well. And so I thought that that was a big factor in, in why that situation was diffused and why we were able to just all move on in a very peaceful manner with that whole situation. Absolutely. You were modeling respect and that activates mirror neurons in the other person. Remember mirror neurons where we are mirroring what other people think or feel. And by doing that, you created a situation where respect leads to value and value leads to trust. And with that trust, it gives you a kiss on the cheek and goes back to bed. I mean, it's wonderful. That's, that's a lot better than, than dealing with a five-man restraint. It sure is, it's, especially if you only have two. Um, and it's hard for him to be continue to be mad, right? He's being shown respect, right? You say that all the time. Like, well, I always think of that situation because, I mean, this happened many years ago. And the, I always thought that the... the when dealing with those sort of individuals, you don't know if what sets them off happened five minutes ago, five days ago, five years ago. You really don't know what it is that's setting them off in that particular moment. And so I tried to be respectful of that, that you really don't know. I mean, what happened to them five years ago could resonate with them immediately in that moment. And that is, is, was always kind of a strange thing that I didn't realize until I worked in that environment that where I kind of had to think in that way. 
Yeah, and remember, memory is limbic, lives in the same place as all these irrational thoughts. And you're absolutely right. Something can happen a long time ago and it suddenly gets activated and then we respond. We, we see this a lot in, in, in folks who've had trauma. You know, we, they're called triggers. We see this a lot in folks with addiction. It's called a trigger where that memory gets activated and it creates this, this huge limbic response. And you know, your response initially was limbic which made sense, right? There's preservation and survival. But then you were able to transform it. And that's, that's using your prefrontal cortex. What will happen next if I continue to escalate the situation now? Or do I do something different? Do I negotiate? Do I listen? Do I treat someone with respect? I, I tell you, it, it's, it's such a wonderful story because it is the metaphor for what we need in our country right now. It really is. We need people to be able to recognize that there are other people angry and then try to treat them with respect and negotiate. What do we want to see different? How can we get there? And, you know, it's a wonderful example because you didn't have to give them the whole can of soda or the whole bottle of soda. It was just the gesture. I recognize you have a need. Let me give you what I can to at least placate some of that. It's great. Great story. You bring up a good point too, Dr. Joe. You know, it, it, there's a lot of cups of coffee that need to be had with a lot of people right now where you know, help me understand why you're feeling this way. Help me understand why you and I are thinking so opposite, right? I, I'd like to understand where you're coming from and I'd be happy to share where I'm coming from. Um, I mean, how many, how many negotiations, how many disputes were resolved over a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, depending on where, you know, you live? Mm -hmm. Well, well, let me just say thank you all. I'm glad I got to share my story, and I'm going to go ahead and listen. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks for coming for on. Thanks for calling in. Okay. All right. So, yeah, so this is, this is exactly what I'm hoping for, is that this story with Dan allows people to reflect a little bit. What, what else can we do? What, what happens when you're so angry? that sometimes you're, you're not thinking straight, you're out of touch with reality. You have what we call psychotic rage, where you're so angry that you, you, you sometimes lose what is going on in reality. Um, but the other part of Dan's story gets to what happens when you realize what you have lost because of this anger. Now, for Dan, it was a little different. You know, he was psychotic. Um, we didn't have medications. I, I just want to go back to the story for a minute. Um, that when we added Clauseril, all we were doing was making a small change in the biological domain. It was not confirming that he was sick and broken, just the opposite. Because remember, this is what we were doing and still do in our fields of medicine. We give a medicine and somebody thinks it means that they're broken 
and that we have to fix them, we have to treat them. I don't think that's what's really happening. At a cell level, you've merely changed the environment. And so the cell responds. It's now at a different IM. I tell you, that's, that's, this is where we're at right now. And we, we have an opportunity as a nation to not give into the darkness. The problem with it though, is to say, well, that means the other person is dark. And that's, that's not the idea here either. We have perspectives. You're allowed to have a perspective. I encourage perspective, we all do. But if my perspective and your perspective are so different, does that mean that reality is really that distorted? Or is it that our I am is different? I grew up in a different home environment than you, a different social domain. My biological domain may be different. My IC domain is different. But I want to be sure that you do not think I see you as broken or inadequate or that there's something wrong with you because of your perspective. Not at all. I'm just really interested. And if we can all be really interested, what do we learn from each other's perspectives as opposed to how do we defend against each other's perspectives? There is a lot to learn here. You know, there really is. How do we do it? You know, but what was going on with Dan when he realized what had passed him by? That was the saddest part of the story. Yeah. Mark, by the way, you read Dan wonderfully. And, and Tom, you read the nurse's part wonderfully too. I enjoyed Thank it. Thank you. That Thank was you. the saddest part. Why was that so sad? Well, you, you, you know, he looks back on all of what he missed out on. And um, Ben wanted to retreat back into that so he didn't have to think about it. I mean, how sad is that? Yeah. It was powerful. It was powerful. And then there was a team of people who created a community for him and welcomed him into it and reminded him again and again of his value. And he was a really smart guy. I mean, this guy was, was really smart. And so he was then able to access that natural intellect and apply it. And he began to feel so much more valuable and in reality, you know, and, and the medicine was remarkable. There's no question. I mean, um, we were lucky that we had that particular medicine and it literally just come out, been on all sorts of other medicines and it was not able to, as we say, break the psychosis, but this did. Um, you know, I, I, I wrote that story with an I am lens as well. And one of the other parts of the I am lens um, had to do with the fear and mistrust that so many people have about other people who have a psychiatric condition. Yeah you know, and how we stigmatize them and ostracize them for a long time. We really thought it was, you know, a moral thing. And then we shifted it to a disease model. We have a disease model of psychiatry. We have a disease model of addiction. And 
the problem with that is it just continues to perpetuate this idea that somebody's sick and there's something wrong with them, you know? Disorder, mind-blowing. So, you know, I get a lot of pushback from it, I must admit. You know, many of my colleagues are saying, you know, you, you can't do that. We, we can't change the paradigm. Um, what, what do we do if, if we don't have sickness, if we don't have illness? And I say, well, what, what we do is we treat people with respect. We see them as doing the best they can. We take this model that we have of the I am and apply it to everything. You know, we apply it to ourselves. We apply it to our society. Our country has an I am. Our country is doing the best it can right now. It doesn't mean we have to like it. It doesn't mean we have to condone it. It's not a free ride. A lot of people and all of us are held responsible for it. And it doesn't even mean we're gonna be successful. But if we keep judging ourselves and other people as less than and broken, because you have a different perspective, where do you think it's gonna end up? I mean, we know where these things end up. When entire groups of people feel that they are disordered and perceived as disordered by others. Yeah, I believe Tom. they made a movie about that just, uh, just about a year prior where people get what they effing deserve. Oh yeah, what movie was that, Tom? Joker. Yeah. That was a dark movie. That was a dark movie. Very good movie. Yeah, incredible. Oscar award-winning movie. Mm. And yeah, highest grossing R-rated. He did an amazing job with that. He improvised a lot of that too, from what I understand. So we have a couple minutes left. I wanna just thank everyone. Small changes have big effects. Here's the small change I'm hoping people can make. I want you just simply to recognize when you're angry, recognize rage, recognize it. As soon as you recognize it, you have shifted to your prefrontal cortex. As soon as you recognize it, you now have an opportunity to think what will happen next if I continue to pursue my anger now. Recognize rage and ask yourself, what do I want to see different? What do I want to see different? And then you can engage with that other person because usually it's not always your anger that gets in the way of success. It's very often someone else's anger that gets in the way of success. So what we're gonna be doing uh, over, the last, over the next few weeks uh, is just talking a bit more about this. And if you go to the Dr. Joshan posting uh, on Facebook, there's a discussion already well underway. Come join it. Come join our discussion about anger and how we can outsmart our most dangerous emotion. You control no one, you influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you wanna be. Everyone has an I am. Everyone is interested in what you think or feel about them through their I see domain. How do you see me? And when you treat someone with respect, well, let me ask you, when's the last time you got angry at someone treating you with respect? When's the last time? All right, folks. Thanks for listening to the story. Good show, Uncle Joe.
<laughs> Bye, guys. Tom, see you later. Yep. Bye, everyone. Bye.